Welcome to the Twinkle Talks EYFS podcast. Working in the early years is busy, funny, messy and exhausting. Join me, Shana, and the rest of the Twinkle EYFS team as we talk honestly about our experiences as practitioners, teachers and professional nappy changers. Whether you're listening to increase your CPD hours or catching up on our antics whilst driving home from work, Twinkle EYFS will share everything you need to know about all things early years. and a happy new year this is our first episode of twinkle talks eyfs with me shana in january of 2023 now how long is it going to take before you start writing the correct date in your planners and your books it's going to take me a good couple of months to get used to writing 23 instead of 22 i hope you're with me on this one it's not just me anyway we're going to get right stuck in today with the first episode of the year And we're going to start off with a little fun. You have sent in some hilarious stories of things that children have said to you that would only happen in early years. Here's Katie with the latest update. This week, if only in the EYFM. Remembering the time when her class was learning about emperor penguins, Marie shares when a three-year-old shouted out that they keep their eggs in their lady bits. She's not technically wrong. Laura discusses the time when a child asked, is it tomorrow today? Because yesterday my mum said I could have an ice cream. So is it tomorrow today? I literally have no idea. When teaching nocturnal animals to her class, Cameron reminds us of the time that a little girl said, my baby brother is nocturnal. He wakes up at night while I'm in bed asleep and he sleeps all day. Something all the parents out there can relate to. That's it for this episode. Tune in next time for more antics in only in the EYFS. <laughs> Fabulous. I mean, what a way to start the new year, right? A bit of a laugh. And um, I'm pretty sure we'll get more hilarious antics from our children in the new year. Can't wait to hear them. Please send them in. They always make us laugh. But for now, we're going to go on to our main event of today's episode, and we're going to talk to the wonderful Sarah Billingham, who is a speech and language advisor, and she's a teacher, and her specialism to talk about today is how behaviour is connected to communication, and how essentially all kinds of behaviour is communication, and how we can spot that and support our children. So, without further ado, let's go and have a chat with Sarah. Sarah, I am so grateful that you are able to join me today to talk about a really, really important topic that affects, well, all of us in the early years, doesn't it? Um, So before we get started, please tell our wonderful listeners about you and about your journey into early years and speech and language therapy. Hey, so wonderful to be here. Thanks so much for having me. I think in podcast land, the first thing to explain is my hybrid accent. So I grew up in South Africa, but I've lived my adult life here in England. Uh, But that's always the thing that people most ask about. Um, I started my teacher training to teach Key Stage 2 and Key Stage 3, and um, I started my teaching career here in England in a mainstream school that had a speech and language resource base as part of the school, and I was just absolutely fascinated about how children with speech and language difficulties learn, how we can make the classroom accessible um, for children who have speech and language struggles, and so I went on to do some postgraduate study and over time have specialised more and more, and I have started to work with younger and younger children because I think that very beginning stage of language development, sharing uh, enjoyment with other people, starting to talk is the most exciting part. So I've got really stuck into that. Well, I thank you. And I don't want to be like biased or anything, but I totally agree with you. (laughs) The earliest is the best place to start. Um, But listeners, you're going to be a little bit um, sick of me today because I'm going to bring out my inner nerd. I did linguistics at university, which is basically the bit before speech therapy. I did three years of it. Right. So when I talk about language, I get really, you think I love phonics? You wait until me and Sarah get started. Like this is some hardcore awesome stuff going on here. And so me and me and Sarah are just going to nerd out together. So I'm just going to make the most of it. Sounds good. Yes. Great. (laughs) First things first, when people talk about speech and language, a lot of people automatically, you know, and naturally think about speech. 
But behavior also comes into it, I think, in a really impactful way, probably more than what people think. So my first question would be is, what is that link between behavior and communication? I think the link is much stronger than people realize. I think, you know, as a starting point, we have to recognize that communication is about so much more than what we say. Mm -hmm. In fact, it's probably less than 10% of our communication is based on the words that come out of our mouths. Oh, wow. Uh, You know, it's our attention to what somebody is saying. It's our ability to share that attention with somebody. It's our eye contact, facial expression, gesture. All of those other things are really important parts of communication. But to talk about behavior specifically, most often when a setting call me in they say there's this child we're concerned about their behavior and I reckon almost 100% of the time I could say I bet you 10 pounds we're going to find a speech language difficulty oh really which sounds a little bit flippant and I don't mean it to sound so flippant but actually that's really backed up by statistics as well so over 80% of children who have an identified emotional or behavioral need have an underlying significant speech and language need which hasn't yet been identified and so you know the research is telling us that there's a strong link there Uh, And on the flip side, for children who have an identified speech and language need, over half of them also have an emotional or behavioral need. So there's definitely a strong correlation between behavior and language. And I think it's a, it's a bit of a cliche phrase, but that concept that behavior is communication, I think is really critical when we're in the early years, yes. when we're working with children who are still at the stage of acquiring skills for the first time. Well, the way in which they most communicate with us is the way in which they behave, yeah. whether they're seeking our attention or wanting a cuddle or, you know, really experiencing those big feelings to the moments, you know, in those moments where they're completely overwhelmed, they demonstrate the way that they're feeling and the way that they behave and that becomes their primary way to communicate with us so I think that correlation is really strong have you observed that in your practice well you know it's funny you say that because when you think about it I don't want to say it's everything but it is though isn't it because I like you say I know it's cliche but I just think about those children that especially because they're so young, they can't articulate that something, they need support with something. And then how how frustrated that must make them feel. And a lot of behavior or challenging behavior that I've seen has come from that, like you say, that emotion, that frustration of not being able to communicate those needs. And I think that's probably a true for a lot of people. Yeah, I think behavior does communicate that so, that there's an unmet need, whether that need is, you know, something like food or drink or whether that need is is a more emotional need like needing somebody's attention or comfort or those sorts of things. Um, But I think we can't underestimate how effortful it is for children who are struggling with their language because they spend the majority of their days struggling to be understood, needing to put a tremendous amount of effort into understanding what other people are asking them to do, Mm -hmm. you know, what's happening in the environment around them, the language that adults in the setting are using, language that other children are using. There's lots of, you know, if you struggle with language, you're likely also going to struggle with social interaction. So loads of misunderstanding happens. And if you're putting that much effort in all of the time, you are more likely to tire and become frustrated more quickly. I just keep thinking, I know it sounds really silly, but I always try and put myself in the position of these children so I can, at least if I can't empathize, I can sympathize with them. I think even as like British people, we find it really hard, even as adults, to talk about our emotions, right? And it's the very British thing. Oh, how you doing? Yeah, I'm fine. And if that's <laughs> if that's what our adults have been brought up with, let alone having a speech and language need, if you're a child, just in general, how difficult it is to sort of switch that cultural you know ingrained um way of talking about emotions is not really doing it (laughs) so it's it's almost even harder for these children and also the expression of our emotion is largely done through language so we tell people how we're feeling or we describe what that feels like or um we tell somebody what we need to make us feel better if you haven't got the language skills to be able to do that, then how else are you supposed to communicate the way in which you feel? And that leaves you with a fallback option of behavior. And that behavior could be withdrawing. You know, it could be being, you know, very quiet in the setting, sitting out and not um, joining in with things. It could be getting up and leaving activities that you're not enjoying rather than being able to politely say, I've had enough now. I want to go and play with something else. You know, sometimes it's opting out behavior rather than what we would describe as challenging behavior. So if you cannot describe the way in which you feel or what you want 
or whether you're you're not enjoying something, then you know you, you have to resort to using your behaviour. Yeah, it also it kind of reminds me of those fight, flight, or faint responses. This kind of reflective of the behaviour, like you say, the typical challenging behaviours would be the fight behaviour, the opting out, <laughs> it's flight and fainting. Sometimes, like you say, is the withdrawal. Yeah, or the freeze response. You know, not being able to give anything because you're you know you're stuck in that moment and you're not sure what to do. Yeah, it's just overwhelming, isn't it? Yeah. And I kind of wanted to make it really clear for our listeners that speech and language difficulties is more than just speech, isn't it? What other kind of difficulties would these children perhaps have? I think what's important to recognise is that each child's development is unique to them. Um, Speech, language and communication covers a really broad range of skills. And a child who's identified as having a speech and language difficulty could have difficulty with one of those areas or a number of those areas or all of those areas. But that will include, you know, being able to listen to other people, being able to use your nonverbal communication. So your eye contact, uh, sharing a smile with somebody, using uh, facial expressions that matches the way that you're feeling in that moment, being able to point to things and gesture. It includes being able to share and take turns. So that, you know, that side of social communication. And then it will also include being able to understand and process language and, you know, understand the message that somebody else is using and the ability to use words. And then on top of that, you know, being able to articulate those clearly. So to use your speech sounds nice and clearly so that, you know, you're intelligible to other people and they can understand you. There's a lot of skills that are happening there, all of which have to work together to have really successful communication. It's a much more, I think, complex skill. When we think about it, we realize, but when we're just day-to-day doing things, we don't necessarily consider how complex that skill is and how many things we're doing at the same time. Yeah, it's quite amazing, isn't it? I mean, again, from an early years perspective, I know that the early years is the most important time of a child's life because... 80 to 90% of their brain is developed between birth to five years. And of course, communication and language is a huge, huge part of that. And it, like you say, it's interrelated to so many things. One thing that you touched upon was the emotional side, the social side. And obviously, we as practitioners know that communication and language and PSED are prime areas for a reason. So what are the potential struggles for children with speech and language needs in terms of all form of emotional regulation and expression? Yeah. So as we've mentioned already, there is that element of they may be much more easily frustrated, you know, just from the sheer effort of of needing to communicate with people all day long when they're finding that difficult. Also, as I've mentioned, we learn about feelings, but also how to deal with our feelings, the sort of strategies that we can use when we're feeling particular ways. We often teach all of that in earlier settings through language. So if you're not accessing those elements, that's really difficult. You might not be able to describe your feelings, but also when someone's trying to teach you what to do to manage your feelings, that's often language-based. So that can be a particular barrier. But the other thing to keep in mind is that uh, not all, but you know, a high proportion of children who have speech and language struggles also have difficulties with their working memory. So that's the side of executive functioning that um, is your ability to remember what you're doing while you're trying to do it. And if you struggle with working memory, it means that you're easily distracted, you lose the thread of what you're doing, maybe you don't finish something that you've started, And that can look to the adults in the setting like somebody has either not listened to the instructions or has chosen not to do the thing that you've asked them to do, when actually they started with very good intentions, but along the way, the thread of that has got lost. So that interruption of working memory is a real factor and can affect how frustrated you become with yourself. You know, we've all had a moment at some point where we've forgotten what we were trying to do or we've forgotten the instructions we've been given or, you know, whatever. And that can be quite frustrating for us. So, you know, that that's happening as well in the background. I'm just I'm just there's so much going on in just this what we'd, we'd imagine is a simple process, isn't it? Like you say, just listening to instructions, you'd think, oh, well, that can't be a speech and language need because that's nothing to do with speech. They're not they're just listening. But actually, it has a like you say, so much to do with it. And then on top of that, if you struggle with working memory, that's just a lot of processes for children. No wonder they get overwhelmed. And in terms of emotional regulation, I didn't actually think about that before as you're talking I'm thinking back to all the the lessons that I would do in nursery about teaching about feelings about emotions and things like that and it would be a focus on the vocabulary we do have a really big focus on the words happy sad 
anxious, worried, frustrated. Like we, I think we do a really good job in early years teaching the vocabulary of emotions because we realize how important that is. But actually, I've never thought about, well, hang on a minute. What if a child has speech and language difficulties? Then teaching the vocabulary isn't going to get very far. So what else, what else could we do? Teaching the vocabulary is very important, but I think it's recognizing how long you need to spend on each of those words. And when we think about the acquisition of language, if we learn two words that have opposite meaning at the same time, it actually makes it very difficult for us to file those away in our lexicon, our little filing cabinet of words correctly. So often what we'll do in a a session where we're teaching children about emotions is we'll, for example, teach happy and sad at the same time. Yeah. And we'll do a lot of that comparison between photographs of people who look happy and photographs of people who look sad. But what that means is the child's then got those two words jumbling around in their head together. They're in the filing cabinet in the right section. They're in the feeling section, but they haven't quite landed on which one does this exactly mean. And so one of my tips for early years practitioners is when you're teaching emotions, focus on one at a time. So for example, if you're teaching happy and you're looking at that comparison of faces, talk about happy and not happy. And then once we've really got that sense of what happy is, then we can move on to learning a new emotion like This is what angry looks like. Are they angry or not angry? So you're not immediately introducing the opposite vocabulary. And then once each of those words is really secure, then you can start to make those kind of comparisons using the vocab. Um, So it's not a case of shying away of teaching the vocabulary, but it's about doing it in a really methodical way that supports a child's language development. That's so interesting because as soon as you said all of that, I was like, yep, that's how I used to do it. (laughs) Yeah, and we do it with loads of other things. You know, we teach wet and dry together and full and empty together and all of those sorts of things. And actually, we're doing nobody any favors. Do you know what? That is a top tip of the day. That's brilliant. That is really actually something that will probably change a lot of people's practices. That's really helpful. And it's a small thing. It makes a huge difference. Yeah. And I think that's probably, I don't want to say sums up how we help children who have speech and language needs but it's looking at those smaller steps isn't it and really breaking it down and I mean early as practitioners we might have to take care of children who are literally from birth to five years old so there's a massive even in that spectrum of developmental stages in terms of language do you think it's harder or different to spot speech and language needs in babies and toddlers who are not actually expected to learn to speak at that point or is it not? I don't actually think it's more difficult to spot but I think that we as adults have a tendency to measure a child's speech and language skills based on their output so we judge it based on you know well by this age they should be using this many words and by this age we should be using this many words and so we tend to use that as our, our unit of measurements if you like but when we're looking at our younger children we really need to be paying attention to how much are the children babbling are they imitating our facial expressions are they giving us good eye contact you know, are they copying the actions that we're doing with our hands? Obviously, in a very approximate way, we're not expecting them to do exactly what we're doing. But that desire to imitate and copy is huge for language learning and also huge for other learning as well. But we would expect quite young children to be using a lot of sound. And if somebody's not using a lot of sound, that's an early indicator that we need to keep an eye on their speech and language development. Yeah. And another thing that you were saying is it popped into my head as well. I mean, early years is not easy. We've got a lot of things to look out for in those first five years. But another thing that comes into it for me is autism, because a lot of the things that you were talking about, about what to look out for, perhaps a child who has autism would also struggle with those things, you know, like eye contact, imitation, things like that selective mutism possibly this is probably a massive question but how do you tell the difference between a speech and language need and maybe another neurological need or is it just too difficult it's not too difficult but I would say that that is for you know specialist professionals to make that distinction I think for practitioners who are working in earlier settings it's about identifying early on whether development is on track or not and then making those referrals to the specialist teams. I don't think, you know, a key worker working in the 12 to 18 month group needs to be able to identify which of those things might be indicators of one diagnosis or another. That's absolutely the job for somebody else. But it's about knowing that these are things we need to look out for. Yeah, that's really important. And on that, 
Say if we are working in a setting, doesn't matter what room we're in, and we are spotting these signs, like you say, we're going back to the development matters, we're going back to the birth of five matters, we're spotting these little signs. We don't know what is going on, but we know that we need extra support. How do we get that extra support? Who do we contact? Who do we go to? I think there's a few different avenues for getting support. And of course, depending on which local authority you work in and which NHS trust is near you, the exact process for that will be different. But there's three kind of key services that that can be accessed to support with um, a child's early communication development. The first is to encourage parents to go back to the health visiting team because the health visiting team has that ability to make referrals onto speech and language or pediatrician or whoever they think is most appropriate, but can also potentially support the family in the interim. So, you know, going back to the health visitors is a key aspect of that. The second is to be making sure as a setting that you're getting in touch with whoever your SEN advisor is. You know, if you're in a large day nursery setting, you may have somebody internal within the organization who does that, or it might be somebody from the local authority. But flagging up anything that you're noticing to that person and asking for support as soon as possible, I think, is important. And then the third avenue is making sure that you are connecting with whatever your local speech and language therapy services. In most cases for children under the age of five, that will be delivered by uh, you know, the community health team, so the NHS team. So making sure that you're really aware of what are our processes for getting in touch with that team. Um, is that a, a referral we need to make as the setting or is that a referral that parents can make? Because in each authority, it's slightly different. But it's those three different services that are the places that you can get help. And I think it's important to be open and honest with parents about that. I think that comes from an incredibly good place. But as early as practitioners, we tend to be incredibly positive about the children and the beautiful progress that they're making in in areas and the things that they enjoy. And of course, we want to be sharing that with parents. But I think sometimes we can be a little bit reticent to let parents know if there's anything that we're a little bit worried about. I think it's important to be letting parents know that. I work with quite a lot of parents directly who will say to me, nobody ever said that they were worried about this. But when I went to the nursery and said I was worried about it they were like oh yeah we've been worried about that for months yeah gosh it's hard (laughs) why didn't you say so (laughs) it's really hard isn't it I've been in those situations and I'm like I don't want to shy away from this but also I don't want to scare the parent because like you say a lot of this can be overwhelming I'm sure some of our listeners are thinking while they're listening to us going oh my gosh there's so much we need to do and we're like trained practitioners so to be a parent and not even have this training and then for someone to come and say oh, this is what we're worried about for your child. I think we're just scared of like trying not to overwhelm Mm. them. And I totally, like I totally understand where people are coming from. It comes from a good place, as I said. But the thing about speech and language is that the earlier we put the support in, the more impact it has. And so if we, you know, not that I wanted to catastrophize the situation, but if we leave something alone for six months or a year, that's potentially six months or a year where we could have been putting help in place, which would have reduced some of those daily frustrations that we've been describing, but also will help the child to make good progress with their language itself. So yeah, I think, I think having those open, honest conversations is important. You can do it in a way that's gentle, but I think just letting people know, because often parents will say, well, you know, the nursery, they're, they're the professionals, so they'll let me know if there's something that I should be worried about. I'm not worried about, but something I should be aware of. Of course. And I think as well, even just listening to you, I was thinking, hang on a minute, if I don't feel like I feel confident enough to say it, I can ask my speech therapist. I can, I yeah, can yeah. ask, yeah, yeah. you know, someone like you, because like you say, you articulate it really well. And this is something that you do on a daily basis because it's your job so I could always you know if a practitioner is like me a little bit like oh gosh how do I approach this with a parent who might be particularly sensitive or anxious always ask don't be like you say be honest not just with your parents but maybe with your speech and language services and say look I don't really know how to approach this how would you suggest we bring up this conversation and I know you'd be more than happy to help because you're clearly so good at it. In the end, it helps everybody, doesn't it? Yeah, and that's also what the SEN advisors are there to do. They're not only there to advise about how we support the child, but they're there to advise about how we support the whole situation, which includes how we communicate with the parents. Yeah, that's great. And so if, say, for example, you know, we've spotted something that we might want the child to have additional support in, we've done the right thing, we've, I don't want to say alerted, again, that's very catastrophic. We've spoken to our SEN teams, we've also spoken to the parents, and things are being put in place, and they are, you know, on the waiting list to be seen, etc, etc. But what can we as parents and practitioners do to support that while they're with us? Absolutely. So, The first thing to think about is the amount of language that you're using. So really simplify that language down. 
think about how much language can this particular child understand and I need to simplify my language to the level that they can understand. So if they're picking up only one word that I'm saying in a sentence, then I need to keep my sentences nice and short with just one key bit of information. So for example, instead of giving the instructions, go and get your coats and shoes and go to the outside area, we would break that down to go and get your coat, now put on your shoes, let's go to the outside area. So breaking that instruction down and doing it step by step with the child, where we wait till they've gotten their coat, then we give them the next instruction. So reducing the amount of language that we use is really important. The second thing to think about is allowing for processing time. So for children who have difficulties understanding language, it can take up to 10 seconds for them to process what you've said, which I won't make everybody listen to 10 seconds of silence now. But for an adult, 10 seconds is an age, to be quite honest. Like, I'm just trying to imagine it now. And I'm like, no, I can't. It's too long. <laughs> and what tends to happen is we say something, we don't get an immediate response. So we repeat it or we rephrase it or we add something extra to it. And all we're doing is piling on the amount of language that somebody needs to process. So if you've waited a reasonable amount of time and you're still not getting a response, then simplify it or show the child or, you know, repeat your instruction. But you've got to be really mindful of not machine gunning with too much language by repeating what you're saying. Um, so allow for lots of processing time. And in that time that you're waiting, give that nice approachable body language, you know, hold their gaze, show them that you're looking and that you're waiting, nice approachable facial expression, nice warm body language. I'm still connected with you, but I'm giving you time. So it's not, I've given the instruction, I turn away to other people and then I come back 10 seconds later. It's I'm holding this communication with you and I'm allowing you time to process what I've said. Um, and then I think the third key thing that makes a really difference in day-to-day -day practice for supporting language within the setting is using visual resources. That can be simple things like the amount of gesture that you use. If you're talking about something, point to it, show what you're talking about. It can be using things like signing, hugely supportive for supporting children's understanding of language. But it can also be things like picture and symbol resources to be able to show children, you know, we're going to the outside area. Here's a picture of the outside area. So you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, 100%. Those are the things that can kind of, you know, while you're waiting, while you're kind of just in the day-to-day -day supporting that child, those three things can make a huge difference. Absolutely. And you know what's really comforting to hear is when you were saying those three things, I really don't think it's that far from what we're doing already, especially the third one. I think early years are really successful at having those visual timetables, about having those now and next cards, about having labels in different areas with pictures and the words so that we're trying to as you say, cover all forms of communication. So I'm hoping that our listeners are feeling confident and like, oh no, wait, I could do this already. But I think it's really interesting when you said about slowing down and, and reducing vocabulary because it's always... I think more natural, especially if we think oh, a child is behind, inverted commas listeners, um, that we need to pile on more to catch them up. But actually, we need to start doing the complete opposite, for, especially for language. And like you say, breaking down those instructions. And I remember I had a child that I thought would need support with uh, communication and language. And I remember doing that and I just re reduced it to the word. So it'd be like, put on your shoes, we're going outside. Put on your shoes, put on your shoes, shoes, shoes. And it, it, it works and it, you just, it feels strange doing it. But like you say, that processing time as well. And gosh, as Brits, aren't we afraid of silence? Like, <laughs> Oh, totally. We're two people who like to chat. We're going to be the worst at doing this, with, you know, with children in real life. Right. I'm just like, oh, it's just, it's that deathly silence, especially in early years. Like if there's silence, that definitely means some toddler is strip naked and is in the tough tray. <laughs> totally, totally. Right. So we've been trained to like fear silence and especially parents with young children too. If their kids are silent, something's up. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's having to relearn, isn't it? Yeah. And I think there's two things in, in what we've just been talking about that, uh, that I'd sort of like to, to pick up and talk about a bit further. The first is when we're thinking about visual resources, make sure that that's a two-way exchange. So what we can be really good at is the examples that you gave of visual timetable and now next board. We're finding visual ways to communicate what we need to communicate with the child. Make sure that they have some visual resources that they can use to communicate things to you. Yes. So, you know, choice boards with perhaps to be able to make their choice at snack time or choice, choice boards of what toys they would like you to get out or what song they would like you to sing at circle time. 
so that there are opportunities for them to be able to point to things to show you what they want. Um, I think that's, you know, a really important element of that, um, that two-way exchange. And the other thing to think about is you were saying, you know, sometimes when a child's um, struggling with their language, we think we need to pile it on. I've heard a lot of practitioners talk about, well, we need to be providing a rich language model. We need to be narrating the children's play and providing a really rich language model. 100%. I don't want to discourage anybody from doing that. But we need to do that in a way that matches the level that a child is at. And so I sum that up with a little phrase, which I think comes from an American speech uh, pathologist. And she talks about this technique of match and add one. So whatever language uh, level of language a child is giving you, match what they're doing and add one more element to just kind of stretch and extend that language with a good model. So if you're with young children who are just pointing to items, match that by pointing so they know you're talking about the same item and giving that item a label. They're pointing at the car. You know, yes, it's a car. <laughs> if they're saying car, extend that a little bit by saying something about the car. Yes, the car's on the road or yes, it's a red car, something like that. The man is in the car, whatever it is. If they're saying the man is in the car, you know, add a bit more to that. Yes, the man's driving the car. So whatever they're giving you, yes, we do want to provide a rich model, but we want to provide a, a rich model that's accessible so that they can keep taking that next step up with their language. So, of course, if you've got, a, you know, one of your children in a setting super articulate and they're giving you a huge narrative about what happens with the car, jump in there and extend that. But if you have another child who in the same play-based activity is just labeling the car, make sure the model you're giving to that child is appropriate to the level of language that they're at. That is such a golden nugget of advice. <laughs> I think I just watched your mind blow in that moment. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listeners, luckily I'm not recording this, but my mouth was open the entire time you said that. Like, of course, because there is that juxtaposition, isn't there? Especially when you get pressure from high above. Like, no, you must have a language-rich um, environment. You must have a vocabulary-rich curriculum. And then, you, like you say, it's like, well, hang on a minute. What about our children with, with language needs? That's going to be overwhelming and completely inappropriate. That model, match and add one, I'm sticking it on my wall. <laughs> The skill of being a practitioner is knowing when to scale up and when to scale down. You know, we don't do the same thing with everybody. I appreciate this is not as relevant when you're working with two and three-year-olds, but I talk to, to teachers in primary school a lot about, you know, if you're modeling writing, if the child's at the stage where they can't yet write their name, you don't model a three-page story written out. Preach. <laughs> but we do that with language. <laughs> you're so right. When you put it like that, you're like, oh, my God. <laughs> yeah, you're so right. That's crazy. And actually talking about the language that we use, I think something that's really interesting and quite recent, I would say, is that we also need to, as practitioners, as adults, look at our own vocabulary. And I don't mean in terms of, you know, the words that we teach the children. It's actually our relationship with the children. And like you said as well, also with parents, terminology is something that's changing constantly. And we want to make sure that our children even though they're young that doesn't mean that they're not aware and they're also not self-aware so we have to be quite mindful of, of the terminology that we use for example a couple of episodes ago we were talking about how the terminology has changed for autism some people prefer to be um, identified as person with autism or other people liked it as autistic person and so you, you really have to be mindful, whoever, whomever you're talking to or about, you know, how do they feel comfortable being identified as? Another example would be EAL, English as an additional language. That's a terminology that we're encouraged not to use anymore. It's actually multilingual because especially in early years, children are learning English alongside their mother tongue. You know, they're still in that first stage of language in their own tongue, as well as English. It's not English as an additional language, it's both. Yeah, or there's, or there's two languages spoken in the home that, that would equally be considered mother tongue because you exactly. know, one parent speaks predominantly one language, the other parent speaks predominantly another language. So it's, it's not giving that hierarchy to which is the most important, but just, you know, accepting um, and celebrating that there are lots of languages spoken by that individual child. Yeah. And I think with speech and language, because there are so many different variations, there are so many different, well, labels. How do we even navigate the terminology that we use? Like, for example, speech and language difficulties. That could mean anything. It could. And I think there is, 
you have your diagnostic language, which is used by speech and language therapists and pediatricians. So, for example, um, something like developmental language disorder. Disorder has a an uncomfortable feeling for lots of people. Yeah. But even the word difficulty, I think, has an uncomfortable feeling for some people. You know, with some of the parents that I've been working with, they've been talking about how they prefer sort of language around things like struggle. You know, my child is struggling with their speech and language, but not sort of defining it as if this will always be. So, you know, just talking about something that they're struggling with or a challenge that they're experiencing at that time. But I think something that can be helpful when you're having conversations with parents, I appreciate sometimes you're talking first, but is to listen to how they describe it and mirror some of the language that they're using. As long as that language is accurate to the situation. If you find the parent describing their child's speech and language as being something that they struggle with, mirror that language. To that's them. really handy. You no, know, because I think that's, you know, they tend to use language that they feel comfortable with in terms of describing how their child is, yeah. is developing. And so always having that listening ear. And I think it's always okay to say at the very beginning, I want to get the way that we're describing this right for you. If I'm saying something and you think, oh, that's not how I would like to describe it. I think the example you gave of that difference between, you know, being described as being a person with autism or an autistic person. I think just having that upfront conversation about let's let's get this right. What, what feels more comfortable to you? Yeah, no, that's really, really helpful. <laughs> there are so many different variations. And like you say, I didn't actually think about struggle and need either. I didn't actually clock the difference. Like you say, struggle seems a lot less permanent the need and I didn't quite register that but a lot of our parents might it certainly seems less permanent than disorder exactly yeah I've always had a problem with disorder the need that we're describing might be something that goes on to be long term that doesn't feel comfortable when you're chatting to somebody of you know the parent of a two-year-old yeah we don't have that crystal ball at this stage particularly if you know the child hasn't been seen by you know the relevant specialists and so on so you know we're not making these long-term definitions we're just chatting about what a child is struggling with in that particular moment yeah that's really helpful thank you thank you we've also had some really good interaction with our listeners Uh, a lot of our practitioners and also parents too they get in touch because obviously this is a big topic that a lot of us will will have to deal with in our career or with our own children. So we've got a couple of listener questions here. The first one is from Katie and she asks, what can we do to make our settings more accessible with children with speech and language needs? I think those three tips that I mentioned already about reducing your language, allowing processing time and the use of visuals are things that make a real difference. Um, But an extra tip that I would add to that is being really mindful when you are speaking with a child who is struggling with their communication to think about how much distraction there is in that moment. Because, of course, if you're trying to process language whilst there's a lot of distraction, it's harder to do. And earlier settings have built in distraction. So it's thinking about, you know, do I need to do this particular circle time somewhere that's a little bit further away from where some of the other children are enjoying the water tray or whatever? Or is this, you know, an activity that I need to go and do over in the book corner where it's a little bit quieter? Or even just thinking about visual distraction. So um, I don't know if the you know the listeners probably won't see where we're sitting, but you and I at the moment are both sitting with a wall behind us. Yes. It's easier for a child to attend to what you're saying if there isn't loads of movement happening behind them. So sometimes I say to practitioners, when you need to give that really important set of instructions, think about where you position yourself so that the child has their back to whatever the busyness is and they can just see you, that can make a real difference as well. It's like a multi-sensory approach, isn't it? Because you're trying to focus on the speech and language, which might be auditory, so listening or speaking and hearing what they're saying. So all of the other senses are going to be hypersensitive as well. Like, can they hear everything else that's going on? Can they see things that are going to distract them? Do you think where they're sitting and texture in that, that might have an impact as well? Yes. And there's also things like there's research studies that tell us that children are able to attend and listen better when they're sitting on a chair than when they're sitting on the carpet because their bodies are better supported. So they're spending less energy supporting their body position and therefore they're able to give you more of their attention. So sometimes thinking about is the seating position best supporting a child's ability to listen to me gosh that's crazy isn't it because I'm pretty sure every earlier setting is carpet time yeah, yeah yeah and we're all sitting on the floor or all of our play is based on the floor huh that's interesting Fliss asks another question she asks 
how do we support reluctant families who don't acknowledge or are not ready yet to acknowledge a potential issue? With- I understand where you're coming from. You know, that th- th- there's something around a child's development that you want to discuss and the parents are not yet ready to have that conversation. Yeah. Totally understand where you're coming from. I think, uh, not that I want to dodge Phyllis's question, but I think sometimes you have to really personalise it to the situation and that's hard to do when you don't know the family that's being talked about. But I think little and often having the you know not saving that conversation for that one parent's evening a term or you know those sorts of things but little and often talking about things that you've noticed you know oh i've noticed when i'm breaking down my instructions for bobby he's able to follow those so much better so this is what i'm doing you know rather than saying there's an issue bobby can't follow long instructions just chatting about this is something that's working well for us it might be worth trying that out and having those conversations often i think can be helpful another thing that can be helpful is inviting the parent into the setting uh, this isn't going to be for everybody but where this feels comfortable inviting the parent into the setting so that they can see how their child is interacting i think sometimes you have to see something to understand it yeah 100 um i think sometimes that can be useful um and the third thing to think about is is there another way in which this parent can be supported? So, you know, through the health visiting service, through the portage service, where somebody might visit the parents at home and open up a new conversation that's more directly with the parents. Um, Sometimes that can be a useful way to go about it as well. Mm. And actually thinking on your second point about inviting the parents in, I know a lot of settings also have something like an online learning journal. Yep. So they might record pictures or videos. I mean, we all know, don't we, that children will behave differently in settings to compare to when they're at home because home is their safe place and their behavior is going to change depending on you know the environment that they're in so a parent might quite rightly say well they don't do that at home they speak loads they do this they do that but in a setting they don't and it's not that it's oh you need to believe us but actually giving them a little clip a little video a little image of well I totally believe you and I'm sure they do do that at home but in the setting they don't do that this is what it looks like and then opening that discussion about okay well this is what's working for us in the setting but also flipping that well if he speaks really well at home what are you doing that we could also learn from and making parents and carers feel part of the support as well yeah absolutely I think I think sometimes it's also helpful to, of course, we want that overlap between what's happening at school and what's happening in the setting and for those two things to naturally feed into each other. But I think it's also okay to, as practitioners, think about, you know, particularly as you're you're coming into those preschool years and coming up to school starting age, is that what you're identifying is what the child needs in an education setting. And so chatting about in an education setting, they're finding this difficult and we need to think about how we can support them moving forward with their education doesn't necessarily describe or cast dispersions or anything else about what the child is doing and achieving at home. It's thinking about, okay, how do we help them within an education setting? And sometimes it can be helpful to slightly separate those things out when you need to. Mm, Yeah, that's really helpful. We've got a final question from Charlotte. She asks, what resources and training can I as a SENCO and a leader provide for those I work with to help them feel more confident in everything that we've just talked about? (laughs) Um, There's a great many things, uh, but Charlotte, there's two particular things that I would recommend. The first is to have a look at um, the ICANN Charities website. So ICANN is the National Speech and Language Charity. And um, there are some brilliant um, training webinars and things that they run on a regular basis. But there's also some recordings of those on the website. Uh, The website is ICANN.org.uk. What's great about some of their videos is that they're at a slightly different pitch in terms of there are some that offer your on-the-ground practitioners and some that offer the Senko or the leader. So, you know, it's great to have those two different levels of that, which I think is a great place to go and have a look and they also have a great progress tracker where you can check in about you know where a child should be for their age in terms of their language and communication development and kind of check in with that so I think that's a great um, resource for training Um, but also in terms of how you kind of keep and build the confidence of your staff uh, as I was saying with the conversations with the parents, little and often works best. So that kind of regular drip feeding of training, and, you know, sharing good resources and so on is really helpful. A great way to do that is by modeling that. So, you know, showing people, you know, on the ground what that would look like. And Harold Welsh, who is a speech and language therapist who runs Find the Key Speech and Language Therapy. But one of the resources that she has is this um, amazing kind of done for you email 
that she emails out to Senkos for them to distribute to their team so that they're getting those little and often opportunities to hear about how we support children's speech, language, and communication development. You know, that gives you two quite different levels of training, something in-depth from somewhere like ICANN that people can dip into, but also those daily useful tips that are coming in small bite-sized chunks, I think are really useful as well. Um, and to sign up to a whole year's worth of those emails is, is ridiculously cost-effective. So I would really encourage people to go and have a look at Ang Harrod's stuff. We both know Ang Harrod is great. So. <laughs> Isn't it such a small world? Okay, so before the end of every episode, we like to play a little game, Sarah. Okay. We like to end on a high, have a little bit of fun. Um, So we're going to do Would You Rather Teacher Edition. Brilliant. And maybe this time we should rename it Speech and Language Advisor Edition. (laughs) That rolls off the tongue a bit better. I like that one. Uh, So first question, would you rather tea or coffee? Well, neither would be my answer to that. <gasps> oh my God. Um, I'm really not a hot drinks person. At a push, I'll drink a tea if I'm like really cold or at a push, I'll drink a coffee if I'm like, you know, in that stage where my daughter was a newborn. I, I could definitely murder <laughs> a coffee at that point. But generally, I'm not a hot drinks person, uh, but I am very reliant on a Diet Coke. Oh, I've got Coke Zero as we are talking right now. Like, the, I don't know. It's just it's my lifeblood. So I completely I understand that entirely. Question number two, would you rather be an early bird or a night owl? I'm 100% a night owl. I do my best work like quite late in the evening, but that has been completely destroyed by having children. So I have an <laughs> eight-year-old and a three-year-old, and my three-year-old particularly hasn't uh, historically been a good sleeper. It's not possible to do your best work at 11 o'clock at night when you know you're going to be getting up a few times during the night. Yes. So that essentially means I now do average work most of the time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sure you don't, but I totally feel you. There's that, is it a gif or a meme when it's like, oh, are you an early bird or a night owl? And it's like, I'm an EYFS practitioner. I'm a permanently exhausted pigeon is what I am. (laughs) Absolutely, 100%. That is me right now. (laughs) Yeah, I'd love to say that I'm an early bird. I do love getting up early and I feel like I do work better in the morning and then I get to like 11 o'clock and then I'm like I'm struggling <laughs> I need a cup of tea Sarah this is I just I need a cup of tea to keep me going and then I always get that after lunch you know, like a dip yeah like my body's processing food and I've got Crohn's so that takes a really long time and all of my energy is just sucked into that so I'm like oh, I'll just go and have a nap and I'm like oh wait no I can't there are children depending on me <laughs> I can see why our babies and our toddlers and our three-year-olds have a nap in the afternoon. I will quite happily join them. I think everybody needs a siesta, like in the med. Yeah, definitely. We'll make it happen. We'll, uh, we'll, yeah, we'll get that. We'll get that in. Great. Final question, last but not least. Would you rather run out of post-it notes or coloured pens? Oh, I feel like this is a really difficult choice. Like you're asking me to choose between my children. You know, I've never <laughs> met a, I've never met a teacher who doesn't love a bit of sparkly stationery. Right? Um, so I love both of those things, but I would probably rather run out of colored pens than post-it notes. I think I think the colored pens I enjoy, the post-it notes I'm reliant on. Oh, do you know, when you said that, I was like, oh yeah, no, wait, no. Like I just, I'm, I'm on the fence, I can't. Like, I, like you say, I lo- I'm dependent on a post-it note. If I'm in a meeting, I need to just whack it down, stick it somewhere because I will forget. My memory is horrendous, but... Oh, Sarah, I do like to color code things. Oh, yeah, I I get that totally. I get that totally. Whenever I see one of those questions on Facebook, people are like, oh, you know, like, what's what are the best like end of the year teacher presents to buy? Like, should we get wine? Should we get chocolate? No, no. Post-it notes, colored pens, stickers, diary. I'm in. Oh, me too. Like, you should see my calendar. Like, Monday is colored in red. Tuesday is colored in orange. Like, I'm sure I drive my manager crazy because if I ever have to do a spreadsheet, it's color coded. All of my planning, color the lot. So, yeah, my executive functioning is not good enough for that. That's how I'd like to be, but that isn't <laughs> how I am. <laughs> oh dear, wishful thinking. Well, yeah, I I'm on the fence for that one. I think we'll have to we'll have to leave it to our listeners to see what they say. <laughs> <laughs> joy to have you and you're just so knowledgeable thank you for imparting such great knowledge and experience um today if we wanted to learn more and our listeners wanted to learn more where can we find you 
Yeah, so um, all of my handles are confidentkids.co. So my website is confidentkids.co. You can find me on Facebook and Instagram at confidentkids.co. Um, but also on Facebook, I run a Facebook community, which is called Confident Communicators. And that's all about early speech language and communication development for under fives. And there's all sorts of great stuff in there about self-regulation, about um, attention and listening, about early language acquisition, lots of videos in there, lots of chat in there. So um, definitely a great place to find me. That's really great. And you said, you know, you go into schools and you do training and things. Have you got any training coming up that people could look into? Uh, yes. So I run Makaton as uh, sign and symbol training. Um, so that's, you know, comes up on a regular basis. But I also do a lot of training around self-regulation and around all forms of kind of language development. So communication for the environments, all sorts of bits and pieces. Some of that will be bespoke to a setting. And sometimes it will be something that I'm, you know, running from time to time. This afternoon, I'm off to go to a special school to talk about self-regulation. <sighs> excited she's a busy lady guys you need to book her while you can she's <laughs> she's in definite need oh thank you so much sarah it's been such a pleasure talking to you and yeah i look forward to uh, hopefully speaking again soon thanks so much super that's the end of today's episode i hope you really enjoyed it the Would You Rather Teacher edition was especially hilarious. Can you pick between post-its and colouring pens? I mean, I it just seems like an impossible choice. I don't know. Maybe it's just me. But I had a lot of fun talking to Sarah today. I hope you enjoyed it just as much as I did. We've got so many amazing episodes coming up with amazing guests. And we're going to do a special series as well about early years across the world. I've been lucky enough to speak to my colleagues in Twinkle in loads of different countries, like Australia, South Africa, Romania, Scotland, to see what it's like and how other people do it in different countries. So I hope you'll stick with me to join me on my mini-series of early years around the world. But until then, I will see you next time. I hope you had a lovely break for New Year and you feel well and truly rested to get cracking in this new term. If you need anything, you know where we are. Come and find us on social media and I will be happy to help. See you soon. So that's it from today's episode. Thanks so much for listening and I hope you really enjoyed it. If you would like to get involved or would like to know more, come and find us on our social media sites. We have a Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, Pinterest and TikTok account. All of the details will be in the description. And whatever you're doing, I hope you have a great day today. day.